going to worship at the end of service today. We might even just do that song again. I don't know. I'm going to let Izzy hear the message, and he's just going to lead and direct however he needs to lead and direct. But today's messages, and yesterday's message, and even tonight's message, is going to be some internal work, right? Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that. We're going to be doing some soul work. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, soul work. Because because tomorrow, I'm going to preach a message on what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. And it's a powerful message, and I think it's going to hit home with you guys, but the ambassadors of Christ message is our response to what God has done for us. The ambassadors of Christ message is more external. It's us living for God for other people. But before we get into that, we need to do some internal work. So tonight, we're going to do some internal work, and right now, we're going to do some internal work. Today, we're going to continue this series through the weekend called If You Know, You Know. Last night, I wanted you to know the gospel because I just believe if you know the gospel, you know freedom. If you know the gospel, you know mercy. If you know the gospel, then you know your value and your worth. If you know the gospel, then you know your identity. Today, I want to talk about the presence of God in your life. Because I believe if you know the presence, you will know peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Like, I believe that Christians should be the people who just walk in the authority of peace. And what do I mean by the authority of peace? I mean that there is such a peace in your life, even in the midst of crazy and turbulent situations, that the rest of the world will look at you and say, how are you so peaceful? How are you even living the way that you are living right now? How are you so calm? How do you have joy with everything that's going on right now? And there's authority in it. Why? Because the peace comes from the power of God in your life. It doesn't come from any temporary thing. It doesn't come from money. It doesn't come from health. It doesn't come from grades. It doesn't come from performance. It comes from God who gives you just this eternal satisfaction and this peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that just hits different. You know what I'm talking about? It's a, it's a peace that the rest of the world looks at and they don't understand it. Like they think you're a little off. They're like, how do you, how are you even, do you even know what's happening right now? And it's like, yes, I know what's happening right now, but I also know that it's going, not going to last forever. I know that I am eternal. I know that if I am in Christ, that I am going to one day live in heaven and I am going to be in eternal relationship with my father. I know that one day he's going to wipe every single tear from my eye. And that hope is an anchor to my soul. And while the current of society and while the turbulence of culture is throwing everybody around, you are anchored in this hope that gives peace. Wow. Today, I want to talk to you about the difference 
of having a knowledge of something and having actually experienced it. We're going to be in the book of Job this morning. And I know that our slides aren't up, so I'm going to do a little bit to kind of over-explain what's happening here so that you can really understand and get the depth of Scripture as it is being presented to you today. So in the book of Job, we have this guy who lived a very long time ago. It would have been after the time of Abraham and Moses, but it would have been before all of the prophets. It would have been before the kings. All right? So Job is going to have this moment in his life where he goes under some extreme trauma. He, he undergoes some extreme loss. And without, without really getting into it too much, I just want to start reading the story to you and do some setup work. I'm going to be in Job chapter 1 to start off. It says this. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. 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 Yeah, go ahead. That's a fun thing to say, I guess. Uz. I don't know if I'm even saying it right. Uz? Maybe. It's Uz. Right? Let's get a Bible scholar in here. Correct me. Job was blameless. He was a man of complete integrity. Now, let me just stop and say something. Job was not sinless. He was blameless. There's a difference. Sinless is vertical. Blameless is horizontal. So that Job, even though he wasn't a perfect person, really strived to do his best to live for God. So that his reputation in his community was outstanding. Job was looked at as a man of complete integrity. He was a man of respect. This was a brother that walked down the street and everybody was like, there's Job. He's a good dude. That's a great man. Like, I just, man, I just, you see that guy right there? I want my kids to grow up to be like Job. Job was a role model, man. Like, I mean, like, Job was walking down the street and people would, like, lay down their cloaks so that he wouldn't get his sandals dirty. I mean, like, he was just a guy that just, wow. He just was so amazing. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. It says, he feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. Okay. It says this, he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants or workers. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job was like baller status. Like, he had so much money. He had so much money. I shouldn't say baller status. Is that really lame? I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I, I won't say that ever again. All right. He was just, he was just, he was super rich. He, he was very rich, guys. He was very rich. And so, like, you know, like, how, like, people nowadays say, like, man, well, I'm so rich. I can stack my money up to the sky, da, 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 da. Like, okay, so, like, back in the day, like, you would stack livestock up to the sky. That's how you knew someone was super rich. Like, the average middle class family back in that day had one ox. One. One ox. Job was so rich that he had 500 teams, which would be 10 oxen each, 500 teams of oxen. Dude was loaded. He was so loaded. And not only that, but he had tons of land. He had tons of power. He had tons of respect. I mean, this guy is just living a great life. And it goes on to say this. It says, 
It says, Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes. And they would invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. Kids got along. The brothers and sisters got along. Listen, my kids fight and punch sometimes. It's all right. It's really nice when your kids get along. You want that for your children. So not only is Job like rich, but apparently he's a really good dad too and his family loves each other. Things are going great. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, hey, (laughs) Job would have to purify his children. Now, I don't know what kind of party these guys were throwing where Job was like, you know what? I better purify my kids. I better, I better go and pray on their behalf. I had better go and intercede. It says that he would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice, which is indicative of him having a knowledge of the Mosaic law. This is something that would have been talked about in the Mosaic law. So Job was a rule follower. He had a knowledge of God. He had a knowledge of the things that he was supposed to do to walk in righteousness and in right standing with God. He understood the purification and the cleansing rituals that would have been talked about in the Mosaic law. We are talking about a man who walked in complete integrity. So we are talking about a guy who had a deep knowledge. Somebody say knowledge. Knowledge. A deep knowledge Of God. All right, so after all of this setup work, we get transported to a scene that is taking place in heaven. That old devil's gonna show up in the throne room and he's going to say, "Uh, God, I have an issue. Of course, Job blesses you. Of course, Job walks in complete integrity. Of course, Job is respected. Job has never had to go through any hardships. Like his kids aren't even slapping each other in the back seat. Like he doesn't, he, he doesn't have to worry about food on his table. He doesn't have to worry about people talking about him behind his back. Hey, hey God, has Job ever had hardship in his entire life? I just, I just wonder, God, can you help me out? Help me understand, like... I bet if you started smacking Job around a little bit or let me take some of his privilege away from him, I bet he would curse you to your face. And God's like, all right, you can do what you need to do to his life, but you will not kill him. And I want to explain something here. God is sovereign. God can do what he wants to do and still be good. Satan in this story has no control. He is a dog on a leash. You have to understand that, okay? It's very important. So Satan is is going to unleash on Job's life. There's going to be some massive and traumatic attack that takes place. I'm going to carry the story in verse 13. It says this. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, having a good old time, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Uh, Job, your oxen were plowing with the donkeys, feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all of the animals, meaning they just stole all your money. They just stole all your ability not only to have money, but to make money. 
The Sabians raided us and they stole all the animals and killed all of the farmhands. So your whole factory just got shut down, bro. It's done. It burnt to the ground and you have no insurance. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. So now all your food is gone. You have no money and you have no dinner. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. So now you can't even trade. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Job, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, your kids, they were having another one of their parties where they were just eating together, having a great time and laughing, and just this freak tornado showed up. And Job, it, it knocked down the house that they were in. And Job, I'm sorry to tell you this, but none of your kids made it. They're, they're gone, Job. In four back-to-back moments, Job's whole life is turned upside down. He just lost everything. And, and I want you to understand some of the deeper implications here. What is not specifically said is that Job also lost his standing and his authority in the community because anything like this that would have happened back in ancient times would have been directly thought of as hidden sin. Like this, there is no way that this could have all happened to Job unless he was up to something. There is no way that this all could have happened to Job unless he was hiding something or there was something that he was burying or that God is judging Job. So not only does he lose his money, not only does he lose his food, not only does he lose his industry, but he also loses his status, his integrity, and his standing in the community. And on top of all of that, he is also dealing with the death of his 10 children that he loved. I mean, he loved these kids. Here's Job's response. What would you say? What would you do if that all happened to you? Listen to this. Job stood up and he tore his robe in grief. And then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship. And he said this. I came naked from my mother's womb. I will be naked when I leave. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Then the Bible goes on to say in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Job's response. The whole book of Job is about patience and faithfulness in the midst of suffering and trauma. It is 
a beautiful book. It is probably the most beautifully written book as far as literary content is concerned in the entire Bible. It is poetry. It is gorgeously written. And Job's response here took grit. It took faithfulness to say what Job said. But can I suggest that Job's response came from a knowledge of God, not from experiences with God? Okay, listen, this is, this, is, this is so important. Did you know that you could have a knowledge of something without ever having experienced it, students? We all know that we can do this, right? It's called secondhand knowledge. So an example of this is I can know that a restaurant is good, allegedly, by reading the reviews, maybe like on Yelp, right? Like that place that we went to, what was that? Okay, awesome. I'm not going to try to say that. It was really good. And here's the thing. I can show up to Chicago, and I can have an idea of where I want to eat, and P. Joey will be like, you're wrong. We're going here, and it's going to be better. Like, P. Joey can say, this place is really good, and I don't need to know. I don't need to put a single bite in my mouth. I know that I'm about to eat at a great restaurant. These are all facts. Right? I don't trust all people like that. (laughs) I've had people say, man, you need to try this chicken sandwich at McDonald's. It's so good. Like, first of all, are we really going to go to McDonald's for a chicken sandwich right now? No, we're not. Stop. Listen, listen. In the name of Jesus, get saved. (laughs) Secondhand knowledge, like... It's just saying something, but never having experienced it before for yourself. Like, you can hear from critics if a movie is good, unless they're attached to the Oscars, because they just pick weird movies now. Like, I don't even want to watch those movies, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, like, so like, you can hear that a movie is good, but, like, you can't really determine for yourself if the movie is good unless you go and sit down and watch it yourself. I have really enjoyed movies that the critics said are awful. I've really enjoyed food that people said is bad. I've also hated food that people said is really good. I'm like, all right. You and I have different tongues. Praise God. You can have a knowledge of something without ever having experienced it. Of course you can. This isn't up for debate. Now, normally, having a knowledge of something without ever experiencing it isn't that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal when we're talking about food. It's not that big of a deal when we're talking about movies. But we aren't talking about food and movies this morning. We're talking about our response to God in uncertain times. We're talking about our response to God and our attitude towards God when we go through trauma. And when we go through something that just hurts. And in that arena, I'm going to tell you that a secondhand knowledge of God isn't enough to sustain your faith. If you just have head knowledge of God, students, but you are not experiencing him, if you are not having a personal devotional life, if you don't know what it means to get alone with God and have 
private altars and have prayer time on your own. If God has not moved powerfully in your life through certain experiences where you yourself have felt the presence of God, I am telling you, if you are just showing up to church and acquiring more knowledge, it's not going to be enough for you. Our knowledge of God has got to carry us into experiences with God. Why? Because knowledge gives us information, but experience gives us confirmation. Why is this so important to have information that is also bolstered with confirmation? Because a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an opinion. And this world has a whole lot of opinions about God, doesn't it? This world is going to tell you all kinds of things about God. But if you have experienced God, you can actually talk back to the world with authority. Ah, healing isn't real. Uh, Bet. I have experienced the healing of God supernaturally in my body. And I am telling you, your opinion that healing isn't real is nice, but I've experienced it. So I am not at the mercy of your opinion. Well, you can't really get joy from the church. You can't get joy from worshiping God and being in the presence of God. You can't experience that kind of peace. What are you talking about? It's all fairy tales. Listen, I appreciate your opinion, but I've experienced experienced it on my own you can't tell me that my god isn't real he has spoke to me he has helped me he has transformed my life so my experience with him is not at the mercy of your ignorant opinion and it is ignorant what is ignorant it's saying things that you think you have a knowledge of without ever having experienced it that's the definition you can you think you, are, you think you can go to a restaurant and read all the reviews and think you are informed. It's only a secondhand knowledge. You are still ignorant until you put that food in your mouth. Job's response was really strange to me. And I'm going to talk to you about why. But first, I want to give you another response from another man of God so that we can compare the two responses Because both of these responses took place after incredible trauma. Both of these responses took place in uncertain times. The response that we're going to read now comes out of Psalm 34. And it's a response from David. And I'm just going to read it to you. And then I'm going to tell you what what David was going through when he wrote these words. Listen to this. And then remember, here's Job's response first. I came naked from my mother's womb. I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's David's response. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. Now listen to this. Here's where it gets really fascinating. Watch what David does here. I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me, and he freed me from all of my fears. That's an experience. Those who look to him for help 
will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. That's knowledge. That's a fact. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all of my troubles. That's an experience. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He's quoting Moses here. He surrounds and defends all those who fear him. That's knowledge. That's fact. He's quoting scripture. So you see what David is doing here. He's taking experiences and knowledge. Experience and knowledge. And he's marrying them together in this incredibly encouraging set of scriptures. And then he finally ends this and says something we have all heard before. David finishes Psalm 34 by saying, Taste and see that the Lord is good. He invites us into experience. He's not just spitting knowledge. He's not just spitting facts. He's saying, I have experienced the goodness of God. You need to come and experience it too. You know who David's talking to in this moment? You know, you know, you know that this was written and inspired by the time that David was actually hiding in a cave with some of his men because he was being hunted down by a, like a dog by Saul. In fact, this psalm was written directly after the time that David had to pretend that he was a madman in front of a Philistine king. The Bible says that David actually drooled on his own beard to make himself look like he was insane so that he could escape the king. He and his men go and they hide in a cave after this. And David's men, if you look in the scripture where this story is taking place, are absolutely disheartened. They're like, are you kidding me? You're supposed to be the next king. We were literally just in the palace. We were literally just living the best life. And now we're acting like fools in front of the Philistine king. David, are you kidding me? What are we going to do? We're going to die. And David says, no, here's the experiences that I walked in with the Lord. He's going to take care of us. He's going to sustain us. Men, you need to keep your faith. You need to trust that God is going to take care of us. And right now, I need you to chill out and I need you to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's David's response. He remains certain in uncertain times because he can lean on a knowledge of God and his personal experiences with God. And he encourages us to do the same. There's this incredible theologian that I highly respect. His name is Tim Keller. He says this, to stand in the presence of God, that is what the gospel is. The gospel is not primarily about forgiveness. It's not primarily about good feelings. It's not primarily about power. All those things are byproducts. They are sparks of a greater fire. It's primarily about the presence of God in your life. The gospel, Emmanuel, God with us. In uncertain times, we have to move beyond the knowledge of God and into experiences with God because knowledge alone cannot sustain your faith. It can't. Just like it wasn't enough to sustain Job. What? It wasn't. Watch this. Remember David's response? How he stacked experiences with knowledge? 
Let's listen to Job's response one more time. Naked I come into the world, fact. Naked I leave, fact. The Lord gives, fact. The Lord gives away, fact. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay. There's no experiences. When David is in uncertain times, he taps into a knowledge of God and he stays anchored in his experiences with God. But when Job is in uncertain times, all he has to tap into is a knowledge, another sermon, the Mosaic law, scripture. And okay, I want to be really careful here because it's not a bad thing to tap into scripture and hear truth in scripture. But students, you have to walk in experiences with God. You have to have devotional time with him. You have to own your faith. Okay, so here's, here, here's what happens next. Three friends of Job are going to show up. And you want to know what these three friends are full of? Opinions. Opinions. Listen, I am telling you that if you read everything from Job 2 to Job 38, it is an absolute flame show. These guys absolutely roast each other for like 36 chapters. It's bananas. It's funny. It's actually like funny some of the things that they say to each other. It's like, my God, you're friends? You're friends? And so essentially what's going to happen is these three friends are going to show up and they're going to surround Job. And here's what they're going to say to him. Job, God is just. God punishes hidden sin. You must have hidden sin. And Job's like, no, I don't. I haven't done anything wrong. Look, there's just some kind of brokenness in this world, and I am a victim of that brokenness. I haven't sinned. I have been in upright standing. You guys can go through all my records. You can read all my receipts. You can open up my phone and see if I've been doing anything shifty. Like, you can look at everything that I got. And his friends are like, no, Job, we don't believe you. Remember what I said. I appreciate your opinion, but my experience says, but Job has no experience. And so what does he do? He's just arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing with these guys. And you want to know what starts to happen to Job is he starts to drift. He starts to drift from his initial response. Remember when Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, in verse 9, Job says, God attacks me without cause. God isn't letting me catch my breath. God laughs at the death of the innocent. Job's words. Job 16, God hates me. He is tearing me apart. God gnashes his teeth at me. This is language to imply that God is being a bully, petulant. Job's words. That's a far cry from blessed be the name of the Lord. Next, God, in Job 27, God has embittered my soul. God's made me bitter. Now again, grace for Job because nobody in this room has walked in experiences like Job has walked. I appreciate that there is trauma in this room. I appreciate that there is a sense of hurt. Job, Job got wrecked. Job got wrecked. But we see that from Job chapter 1, his knowledge of God isn't enough to sustain him. And as he continues to talk to other individuals about what is going on in his life, their opinions start to carry weight. 
their opinions start to push him away from his original response. Leonard Ravenhill warns, you can have all of your doctrine right, yet still not have the presence of God. Job had this knowledge, but did he have presence? Look at me, family. How are you really doing? Like in the midst of everything that's happened in the last couple of years, are you anchored or do you find yourself drifting? Like how have things been going since the last time you moved, like God moved powerfully and authentically in your life privately? Privately. Do you remember? Have you noticed this cycle that you enter? I think the last two years shifted the way that we did church. You were going from service to service when you were made to go from glory to glory. But when in-person services were taken away for a season, you were exposed because it was the only place you knew how to run to an altar. I don't, I, I told the leaders this earlier. I said, I didn't like a lot about the shutdowns. I get why we had to do it. 100%. I get, I get why we had to do it. Okay. But there is one thing that I loved. When the public altar was taken away, it showed the church the importance of the private altar again. Seeking God face to face, quorum Deo, in your room. Are you relying on a knowledge of God or are you making sure you are having experiences and encounters in the presence of God? Your self family. Like those devotionals that you did where you cracked open the word of God and you were just reading it by yourself this morning, you do know you can do that at home too, right? Statistics say that most of you don't. 92% of people who claim to be Christians in their teenage years don't read the Bible more than once a month. So essentially what you're doing is you are coming to church and you are getting regurgitated information. I don't know about you, but I'm not a bird. I don't need my pastor to spit what they've chewed up into my mouth so that I can be sustained. That's disgusting. That's how my grandma said it. Disgusting because she was Irish, fresh off the boat from Ireland. That's nasty. You know the thing that gets me about Job's response in chapter 1 is that he goes through this immense pain and he goes through this immense trauma and then he just... States the facts, right? He just references God. Like, it's weird. To me, there's a disconnect. Here's what I mean. I have three children. They're here, right? Um, And and I'm going to pick on my youngest son, Corbin, right now. And, uh, you know, in my experiences with with my children as their father, when one of them gets injured or scared or emotionally wounded, they don't just sit there in a puddle and reference me. They don't just refer to me. They don't just say the things that I have said to encourage them. They don't just go off on some dad joke platitude kind of nonsensical tirade. I remember a couple of years ago, we were at our house in southern Illinois, and you don't have a lot of these up here in the Chicagoland area. Number one, concrete. Number two, it's cold all the time. Right, but in in southern Illinois we have a, like there's this abundance of these ground bees, and the ground bees are jerks, right? So what they do is they like dig holes in the ground near trees, and that's where they build their nest underground. And so like you'll be out like mowing your lawn or like doing some weed whacking and stuff like that, and like it gets noisy, 
and these bees will just fly up out of the hole and start stabbing you, right? They're just jerks. I mean, like, they just get triggered. And so my youngest son, Corbin, he was out, like, doing something, making noise like little boys like to do, playing soccer, kicking a ball, doing all kinds of stuff. And then what ends up happening is these bees come up. He got, he got stuck, like, seven or eight times. I mean, he got stung up. And these guys, can I just tell you something? I've been stung by these every year. Every summer I get stung. I just wait for it because they're jerks and they hide underground. And you got to mow that lawn. You know what I mean? So it's like, so it's like, I'm like, they hurt. I'm a grown man. And I'm like, ah! like it hurts. Like, like I stop, I drop the mower and I take off running like a child. Like I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not like swinging at him. You know what I mean? Like I'm running. I'm just like, there's, I'm, I'm done. I'm gone. Like I'm getting stabbed. I'm out. Right. So Corbin gets stung by bees. Here's what Corbin didn't do. Here's what he did not do. Corbin did not sit there and wonder why this was happening. Corbin didn't pine on the injustice of bees. He didn't start spouting facts about how I, his father, have the wisdom to pull out the stingers and have the resources to give him calamine lotion. Blessed be the name of my dad. (laughs) Students, Corbin didn't reference me. He ran to me. Some of you have been through immense trauma, and I get that. My wife and I can swap scar stories with the best of them. My wife, have you guys ever heard of the ACE score? The ACE score is an adverse childhood experience. And you get a point for crazy childhood trauma that you have been through. If you score a four or more, you statistically are supposed to be a drug addict, depressed, anxiety, suicidal, like statistics go through the roof. My wife's ACE score is like eight. She's just been through it. She's just been through crazy trauma in her life. My own family was far from perfect. And it caused crazy trauma and bitterness and just anger in my life. I was so angry as a teenager. I was so angry as a young adult man, just angry all of the time. Do you know what healed me? Do you know what healed my wife? It wasn't an acquisition of knowledge. All respect, it wasn't another sermon. It was the presence of God. It was the presence of God. There's this idea in scripture, and it's mentioned in a couple of scriptures, where God says that he will shelter us in his wings. Now, a lot of us read that and we're like, oh, wings, like a bird. No. Wings were referred to as the outer parts of the robe that a man would wear because they didn't wear, like, jeans back in the day. They had, like, robes, right? And so the wings, this idea of being sheltered in the wings was this idea, like, of a father wrapping his robe around his young child to protect that child from a windstorm, from sand blowing in their eyes, from the cold if they were cold, shading them if it was too hot. It's this beautiful imagery of a father just protecting and loving and wrapping his presence around his child. And the Bible constantly says that we can find shelter in the wings of God. And that's what it's talking about. It's this beautiful imagery 
of the fatherhood and the love of God for each and every single one of us. Hebrews 6 says, run to God and you take refuge in him. And God will give you this hope that will be an anchor to your soul. The thing about anchors is that the current still exists. It just loses its power to make you drift. And God's word says that there is only one place to find an anchor for your soul. One place, one father that we run to, and it's Jesus. For 37 chapters, Job is going to drift. And he's going to ask, why? Why? Why is this happening? Can I just get, can I just get a meeting with God? I feel like I'm on trial. Is there anybody that can advocate for me, which is just an allusion to the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ, by the way? Is there somebody who can stand up for me? Is there somebody who can plead my case before God? I'm innocent. I don't know why I'm going through the things that I'm going. God, why? 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 What's going on? What's happening? Then in chapter 38, like Job is going to be obsessed with getting answers. And then in chapter 38, God is going to show up and listen to this church. Instead of giving Job the answers to his questions, he's going to give Job something better. He's going to give Job his presence. Do you realize that in the entire book of Job, Job asks over 250 questions. Do you know how many of those questions God answers? Zero. God answers zero of Job's questions. Joey knows where I'm going. All right. Job was so obsessed with getting the why But God was more obsessed with showing Job the who. Okay, Job 38 is one of like the most significant beatdowns in all of scripture. So, So the Bible says that God is going to appear in front of Job out of a whirlwind. I want to just pause for a minute and help you respect the imagery that is happening here. God is going to show up in a whirlwind and Job is in the middle of this field surrounded by all of these trees and everything from the trees to the grass on the ground is now bowing down in the presence of God because it's a whirlwind. Have you ever seen a hurricane or a tornado? Have you ever seen trees just bending over in the presence of a mighty storm? Well, that's what's happening right now. Job's robe is blowing backwards and flapping in the wind. His hair is being streaked back. There is dust and debris that is probably hitting him in the face. And God is going to say to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words that have no knowledge? This whole time, Job was hinging his faith on an acquisition of knowledge, and God shows up and says, you don't even have any knowledge. And then God is going to say to Job, brace yourself like a man. Other versions will say, gird up your loins, and it's just weird. But here is the imagery. I told you that back in the day, dudes wore robes. So if you're a shepherd and a wolf or a bear comes to attack your sheep, you're not fighting that thing in a robe. So what you do is you gird up your loins. You take the robe and you tie it around your upper thighs. 
so you look like a teenager at the gym, right? Showing your thighs off all the time. You know what I'm saying. You're wearing your little Gymshark shorty shorts, five-inch inseam. What's wrong with you? You ain't even got thighs. Gird up your loins like a man. Because I'm about to question you and you are about to answer me. So essentially, God is saying, we're going to fight. You're questioning me? You're going to get ignorant with me? So here's the thing. It's funny because in, in chapter 1, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. But he blames God a lot in between 1 and 38. And it gets God's attention. He's like, you're looking in the wrong direction, boy. God is going to say things to Job like, where were you when I spoke the universe into existence and I was hanging stars in the sky while angels were praising my name? Job, where were you when I gave birth to the oceans? The oceans. And I said, you can come this far, but you can come no further. And the oceans obeyed him. Any of you ever gone to the ocean and told it to stop? (laughs) Just do that one day. Just stand, like right, like like get waist high and stand right like a wave is coming at you right off the Atlantic and just be like, stop. You're going to get smacked in the face by all waves. Hey, Job, where were you when I raised mountains out of the firmament as sentinels to watch over you? Job, where were you when I set the feeding cycles of cicadas? Job, where were you when I taught birds how to feed their young? Job, where were you when I taught mother bears how to protect their young? Please tell me if you know, because obviously you were there. And God is using just the most beautiful, divine sarcasm of all time in all of Scripture. He's like, Job, where were you? And Job's like, nowhere, Lord. (laughs) Nowhere. (laughs) Now, some of you will read verses, chapters 38 through 41. You're like, that's harsh. No, it's not. The things that God says to Job was some of the most grace-filled, most beautiful things that he could have said to Job in the moment that Job was going through all of the trauma that he was going through. Why was it so peppered with grace? Because God is going to show Job his power. I created. God is going to show Job his sovereignty. I control. God is going to show Job his majesty. I direct. And then God is going to show Job his character. Job, I see the large, I see the small, and I see you. Like the fact that the God of the universe would even appear before Job is so incredible to me. It's just such a symbol of God's love that when Job needed answers, God gave Job his presence. And it was everything that Job needed. In the midst of uncertainty, Job was looking for why, but God wanted to show him who. God didn't answer Job's questions. God gave Job himself. And everything shifts for Job. We're going to finish with this. In Job chapter 42, it's the very last chapter in the book of Job. 
It's right before Psalms. Job is going to reply to God a second time. So Job's first response is in chapter 1. Job's second response to God is in chapter 42. And it's extremely revealing. Listen. It says this. God, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? And it was me. I was talking about things that I knew nothing about. So right here, we see Job calling himself ignorant, even though he waxed eloquent in chapter 1. Oh, I have all of this knowledge. He was so respected by man. He was, oh, look at this guy. Job is upright. He walks in integrity. He practiced the Mosaic law on his children to a T. On earthly standards, we would say that Job was extremely knowledgeable. But here, Job goes from this prosperity and privilege to this place of extreme humility. And he's like, man. After experiencing you, I was ignorant. I I actually didn't have the first clue. Students, isn't it interesting that so many of you can form an opinion about God, but none of you actually spend time with him? Oh, this is who God is. I got all this knowledge. I've been to church. I'm listening to this atheist and this influencer. I'm listening to this you know, artist and performing personality, and they're saying this about God, and they're, who is this that darkens my counsel with words that have no wisdom? Oh, it's like, what are we playing at? Have you experienced him? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I appreciate your opinion, but you have no experience. What are you even talking about? Okay. He goes on to say this. I got excited and turned the page with my wind. Sorry. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It was me, God. I was talking about things I knew nothing about. And then he says, things far too wonderful for me. This word, far too wonderful, this is actually written in song form. Job is worshiping. Job is singing to God in this moment. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Listen to this. Ready? $10 million line. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you for myself. Some of you were getting really uncomfortable that I said Job only had knowledge and not experience. He just said it himself right here. Oh, God, I've been going to church every week. I have been practicing. I've been listening to the greatest sermons. I've been watching these dudes on Instagram like for 30 seconds and getting saved with their little clips. I've been acquiring all of this knowledge. I've got this. No, you've only heard about God. But are you experiencing him, students? I'm going to wrap this up. He says, now I've seen you with my own eyes. And then what does he say? He says, 
I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. For what? In chapter 1, he didn't sin by blaming God. But in chapter 42, he's sitting in dust and ashes, and he has to repent. For what? The things he said. His ignorance. All of that knowledge that was completely wrong because he never walked in experiences with God. All right. Here are four quick things that I want you to see. And these are super quick things that I want you to see in Job's final response. Worship team, can you come on up? The first thing that I want you to see in, in, in Job's final response to God is, one, Job wasn't talking about God. Job was talking to God. He stopped talking about, you you realize in in chapter 1, he was just talking about God. But in chapter 41, he's actually speaking directly to him. As Christians, you need to spend more time talking to God than talking about God. As pastors, you need to spend more time talking to God than you do talking about God. We are really good at talking about God. We have become experts at talking about God and having opinions and having these hot takes and having these tweetable statements. Who cares about all of that? Do you talk to God? When is the last time you encountered God? When is the last time you just sat in God's presence, totally abandoned to him? When is the last time that your heart was broken over the things that break the heart of God? In these last two years, have you experienced devotion or drift? You can have a knowledge of God, but have you tasted and seen that he's good? Number two, Job worshipped in spite of his circumstances. God, you are far too wonderful. I'm not going to sing, but Job was singing. You're far too wonderful for me to understand. You do understand that when Job is singing these words and telling God how wonderful he is, that his kids are still dead. That his body is still racked with boils and sores and he's in incredible excruciating pain? Do you realize that Job is still broke and poor? All of his influence is gone. Kids are mocking him as he walks by them in the street. Do you realize that Job is worshiping and he hasn't even been restored yet? Some of you are waiting for God to restore you before you think you get the right to worship him again. God is worthy of your worship no matter what is going on in your life. Number three. Job repented. From what? The drift. The things that he said. Harboring ignorant opinions about God without ever really having experienced him before. I think some of you need to repent of that today too. I can just be really honest. I think it's time for us to repent of all of the opinions we have formed about God without ever having talked to him. I mean, none of you would allow people to talk about you behind your back without talking to you and getting the facts straight first, but you're okay doing that to God. number four, Job responds before he is restored. I know this sounds like worship, but it's different. 
Is it important that Job talks to God before he's restored? Yes, massively. Because Job found his blessing in the presence of the Father, not the restoration of his possessions. God became Job's portion. How is Job able to do it? In the pain and in the trauma. I'll tell you how he did it. He had the presence of God in his life for the first time ever. And he was overwhelmed. Everything that was going on in his life became so minuscule. It became so small in the presence of God. Just like God revealed himself to Job. Did you know that God revealed himself to us in the form of Jesus? Who took on the suffering that we did deserve? We're not blameless. The work of the Holy Spirit at salvation is regeneration. And God wants to work in you right now so that you have the ability to respond the same way that Job did. I want you to understand that the book of Job ends in a beautiful way. You know that God comes back and he gives Job a double portion. He gives Job twice what he had in the beginning. Fully heals, fully restores Job. Do you know that the book of Job is actually a form of the gospel? Think about it. In the beginning, Job had this perfect life. Everything was running the way that it was supposed to be, just like the Garden of Eden. And then the devil shows up, and then brokenness ensues. From there, Job is going through immense pain and immense trauma. And from that moment, Job is saying, wait a minute. When will somebody come that can stand before me, that can advocate? He's begging for a Messiah. He's begging for an advocate. He's begging for a Savior. Jesus was our advocate that Job was begging for. And then, at the very end, God loved Job so much that he sent himself to Job. Just like God loved us so much that he sent himself in the form of Jesus to us. And when we experience Jesus and his salvation, it doesn't matter what we're going through. We have the ability to respond to God. We can now be in communion with God after God gives us his presence. Do you see how this is with beautiful symmetry with the gospel? This is why the Bible is the authoritative word of God. This doesn't happen by accident. This is God inspiration. And then finally, Job is fully restored. And one day, you will have a true and better restoration when you are in eternal bliss and community with God in heaven. You will have more than this world could ever give you, more than you ever had at first. God is going to restore you. Can you stand up where you're at? Here's how we're going to respond. We got to get to lunch here in a little bit. Okay, then we're good. I think it's time for us to practice the presence of God. You have four responses, just like Job had four responses. One, I want you to talk to God instead of talking about God. While we worship right now, I want you to find a quiet place in this room and just talk open and honestly to God. 
plead your case to him. Talk to him about what you're going through and then begin to worship him. Students, talk to God. If you've never done it before, if you feel awkward, we're all doing it. It's okay. The Bible says that God is your friend. He sticks closer than a brother. You can just have open, honest, and transparent conversation with him. Two, if you're going through hell on earth, worship God in the midst of your circumstances. Sing the song with the worship team that they're going to be singing and just talk about the glory and the wonder of God no matter what you're going through. Invite his presence into your life. You personally, not just in this room, but in you personally. Number three, if you need to repent, then repent. Turn around and kneel at your chair. Come up here and kneel at this altar. And you can say these words specifically. God, I repent for the things that I said. I have a lot of opinions about you, but I've never really walked in experiences with you. That changes today. Father, forgive me. Forgive me for relying on the world to get information about you than just going directly to the source. And then finally, respond to God before you're restored. Some of you have been holding a grudge against God because of the cards you've been dealt, because of the life that you've been placed in the middle of, because of things that have been happening to you. God sees it. He loves you. And I think it's time for you to respond to him and start to thank him for all of the blessings that you have in your life instead of focusing on all of the horrific things that have happened. Take a minute and shift. I'm not talking to you as somebody who's ignorant about this. I'm talking to you about somebody who is literally healed from trauma in my own life. My wife was healed from trauma in her own life by actually talking to God and being in his presence. Father, we come before you right now and we love you, Jesus. And we're gonna respond to you right now. We're gonna worship you, God. We invite your presence into this place. God, would you move in a way that is so much more powerful than we are ever, and that we've than we've ever experienced? God, I pray that you would heal trauma in this room. I pray that you would help these students respond to you in a new and a fresh way. Oh God, we pray in your name. Amen. You can come to the altars, spread out across the room and pray right now. Come forward, worship.